My name's Buffalo Bill and you're listening to The Bike Show on Resonance FM. Um, we now move on to item six, um, which is a uh, motion in the name of um, Joanne McCartney. Um, Joanne, can I ask you to, um, to move, the, move the motion? Uh. I'm going to speak briefly if I can, but I'm happy that we've got cross-party support for this motion. What you're listening to is the sound of the London Assembly last week passing a motion calling for the immediate installation of all necessary safety mirrors to lorries, trucks, heavy goods vehicles on the streets of London. And uh, the motion was proposed by Joanne McCartney and seconded by Val Shawcross, who we heard from on the show last week. And um, the motion was carried with a little amendment from Jenny Jones of the Green Party, who pointed out that it's uh, better to say collision than accident, because it's very rare that any injury or fatality on the roads is caused purely by an accident. There's usually someone doing something wrong somewhere along the lines, and uh, changing to collision is a bit more of a politically correct um, expression, more accurate expression. Anyway, I play you this because this is a sign that the people at the top in politics in London are waking up to the death and the slaughter that is going on on the roads of London. This is hopefully just the very beginning of a new level of political engagement in uh, this very serious issue of cyclists endangered by heavy goods vehicles, lorries, trucks, call them what you like, 18-wheelers. even a story in the Evening Standard last week saying that the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, uh, wanted to propose a new law that would allow cyclists to turn left at red lights, um, obviously giving way to pedestrians who are crossing the road if there were any, but essentially allowing cyclists to turn left and get out of the way of um, heavy goods vehicles to get into a safe space and obviously to get to their destination a little bit quicker. Uh, Boris Johnson is obviously a cyclist himself, so is very much aware of the kinds of uh, dangers that there are out on the roads. And if this measure goes through, I have to say that would be a huge um, step forward, along with um, certain plans that there are afoot to allow cyclists to uh, go the wrong way down one-way streets, which is a common practice in cities like Brussels and Paris, where there's just a simple sign that says it's one way, but cyclists uh, are accepted. If that were introduced in London, I think um, we'd be in a much better position than we currently are. This is the very last episode in the current season of The Bike Show. It's been a a long season and I think a pretty good season. We've had a lot of touring. We've had the Molten Special 
and it's to the subject of small wheeled bicycles that we return today with a talk by Andrew Ritchie who's recently stepped down as the head of the Brompton Bicycle Company. Andrew Ritchie of course was the uh, inventor of the Brompton and has steered the company to real global success and the Brompton is really the champion of all the different kind of folding bikes um, in terms of ease of use, um, ease of getting onto a train if you want to get into a city and then ride off the train at the other end. It's not necessarily the fastest or best performing folding bicycle but it's certainly the one that seems to be fetching the highest prices and um, the one that's got the longest waiting list if you're trying to get a new one. Anyway, Andrew Ritchie will be um, talking about his invention and how he uh, made it happen in what is a really excellent talk. But um, it's not just Alex Moulton and Andrew Ritchie and those types of, you might say, eccentric English inventor designers who pioneered the small wheeled bicycles. Oh no, even though people on the continent will often look down at um, at the small wheeled bicycle particularly people from southern europe there is in fact a hidden history of development of small wheeled bicycles in france and this is something that tony hadland who is of course the uh, historian of molten bicycles and in fact he's a, a cycle horse historian in in other ways as well he's he's written very widely about the british cycling industry and is a real fount of knowledge that hopefully in the next season of the bike show we'll be tapping a little bit more anyway i asked tony to tell me a little bit more about the french history of small wheeled bicycles there was some serious work done on small wheel bicycles in France uh, in the early part of the 20th century and it's been kind of selectively written out because uh, one of the most famous characters in, in French cycle history is uh, was known as Velocio. He wrote as Velocio. His real name was Paul de Vivi and he was a great um, experimenter from about the beginning of the um, 1900s through till the 1930s based in the Saint-Étienne area which was the kind of Coventry of France where all the bicycle in industry was also a hilly area so there was more of an incentive to develop, to develop wider ratio gears and you know it was hillier than Nottingham or Coventry put it that way and uh, he used to experiment all the time with bicycle designs with wheel diameters with gearing and all this sort of thing take notes rode tens of thousands of miles and he was seriously into uh, smaller wheel sizes uh, in the order of 24 to 22 inches but with wider diameter tires it was a different design philosophy from Moulton's because Moulton's is all about narrow tyres at high pressure with suspension. But what de Vivi was working on was using very uh, slim wall tyres, which uh, didn't lose much energy with the, the thin walls of them, but with um, uh, a wider profile than usual. And he uh, you know, was very much in favour of this. He actually wrote on one occasion, the only reason that cyclists continue with these 28-inch wheels is that they follow each other like sheep. Well, that was Tony Hadland explaining that small-wheeled bicycles um, were actually something that was discussed at some great length in France in the earlier part of the 20th century. Now, Andrew Ritchie um, is the man who came up with the Brompton design, uh, working away in his bedsit on the Brompton Road in the 1970s. And um, he gave a talk at a conference in Barcelona earlier in the year. And you may have seen this conference uh, the footage of it on 
the internet because it is available there as a video. But um, I thought the talk was so good that it really merited um, broadcast on the radio. And so I extracted the audio. And I'm here for your listening pleasure is Andrew Ritchie telling the Brompton story. I guess the reason it's been a success in the world is people who've used it have realised how they can open up their lives, how they can travel much more easily um, with one of these with them. In an ideal world, it would be much smaller, much easier to carry, and just a little magic carpet you could roll up and put in your pocket. Um, in practice, I'm afraid it's quite lumpy. I would love it to be smaller, but that's the way it is. And it doesn't seem to have put people off wanting to buy it. Now, I've got 20 minutes to tell you the story that I've been engaged in, and I'm afraid it's rather a lot about me. Um, I conceived the Brompton 33 years ago, and I've been with the project, driving it for the last, um, well, until three months ago, and I'm still very much part of the team involved with making the Brompton. But I have handed over the baton to a younger man who's now managing director at Brompton. But it's been a long 33 years. Um, I guess... I should start with, sort of by way of explanation, why everything took so long. When God drew up his blueprint for me, he had in mind a little bit of creativity, quite a lot of common sense, and my cup of, if you like, entrepreneurial qualities and leadership qualities was not as full as it might have been. So in the drive to get the Brompton off the ground, there were certain drawbacks, if you like, about my character, which made it take rather longer than it might have done. But who knows? It, you might have had the full glass of leadership and entrepreneurship, but not the, if you like, creative attention to detail that I brought to the Brompton. But what has been quite important, I noticed the IFES theme has a lot to do with teamwork. In many ways, Brompton is, hasn't been teamwork, but yes, it has. I told you I haven't really got the full spectrum of qualities to get a business going. And along the way, key individuals, key groups of individuals, and I'll try and present them as they come along in the story, have made a huge difference to the way the Brompton has come about. It might have been far more successful without them. It might have gone in a completely different direction. Um, but as far as the real history, what actually happened, these individuals were rather key into, in, the, in the scheme of things in getting Brompton off the ground. And one other thing I should say about the Brompton, I don't know, I wasn't here yesterday, but it is just one example of how innovation can happen. It's a pretty, in many ways a pretty old-fashioned product. It's just Victorian engineering, a welded frame, rearranged, nothing fundamental such as some of the changes we've been seeing over the last 50 years in which Peter Watson was referring to. So it is, as I say, just one example with one person and should be seen as that and no more. Um, one of the things that's happened just before I get into the story, which is quite good for my vanity, um, but I think it's slightly unjustified, is I've been, I find that some people put Andrew Ritchie onto a bit of a pedestal. He's the inventor of the Brompton. What a splendid man he must be. And this happens particularly in Japan, where there's a lot of bowing and, if you like, rather reverential treatment of me. And I find this all rather, not comic, but inappropriate, if you like. Because, like so many people who've, and I know this is a cliche, but I've been building on the shoulders of giants. When I started with the Brompton... There was an ordinary bicycle. There was a wheel at the front, wheel at the back, saddle, handlebars. I just copied all that. I didn't do anything new. It's exactly the same formulation as existed on bicycles. Small wheels. 
until Alex Milton came along, and he was, some of you may have heard of him, he introduced small wheels to an adult bike in the UK. Without the confidence in small wheels that that had created, I would never have dreamt of making a folding bike with small wheels. It would have been too much of a leap in the dark to get people to accept small wheels and the idea that a funny little package like this can work as a bike. So I had these things going for me before I even started. And really, all I did was rearrange it and put some new joints and new angles in, which took a little bit of ingenuity, but um, it's, it's not the huge advance that many breakthroughs, many fundamental insights have. It's just been a design operation that I've, I've been involved with refining over the years. Um, I think if I do deserve credit at all, it's really for my tendency to avoid the first thought that comes into one's head. It's never very elegant, unless you're lucky. And I would wait for my muse, if you like, to work for a long time. I would nag away at any detail of design that I didn't think was near enough right. I'm not saying everything is perfectly elegant on the Brompton, but there were always solutions to the countless small design problems in making that thing fold away. There were always solutions which just didn't seem to be right. And I would spend, in my obsession with the project, over much time, if you like, shaking them until they, f they came right. And that is perhaps the one thing that has made the Brompton a success, because it's been reasonably simple to make, and because it's reasonably simple, it functions okay. And I guess that's the, the sort of one quality I've brought to it that might have been lacking with others with a different approach. The story of Brompton, if you like, falls into two distinct stages. As I say, it's been, I've been at it for 33 years. The first 13 years involved my conceiving the idea and then I'm afraid thrashing around hopelessly trying to find ways to commercialize it, trying to get, find ways to make money out of it, obviously, although I'm not that interested in making money, trying to make a success of my idea. And for a young man, for I was then, it was a long, very frustrating 13 years. Lots of avenues seemed to be open, about to open up and then fell in on themselves. I'll take you through some of the, some of the difficulties at that stage. But eventually, and this really characterizes the next stage of the bike, was the last 20 years, finally, finally, I got some money together and struggled into production on a very limited scale, and we haven't really looked back since. But the progress has been very steady, very slow, and that's partly to do with my nature. Um, whilst I was working during the 13 years of unproductive, well, productive, of course, because I designed and created the thing, but unproductive insofar as, insofar as I wasn't commercializing it, I wasn't being paid by anybody. Very occasionally, Brompton had a little bit of money from various backers, but that was quickly used up. So my life was spent always with, on the edge. I couldn't take a permanent job because something was always just about to happen with Brompton, a breakthrough. Something was going to be there. So my life was spent laboring, being a gardener, being a messenger. Um, any work I could get, I did some engineering design on the sides, but always short projects. So whilst I did have time to think about the Brompton, Actually, earning my keep in the meantime was altogether less productive, but at least it kept me from starving. How did I come to start the Brompton? I'd always used a push bike. I went round town at university and when I came to live in London on two wheels, both a motorbike and an ordinary push bike. And in a sort of rather casual way, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice if you could have a bike that you could carry with you and take around to stations or wherever without having to worry about it? But I never did anything about it. I was busy trying to earn my keep. It had just been a thought, and a thought I know has occurred to many other people. And a chance meeting between my father, who worked in the city of London as an analyst, 
between my father and a guy called Bill Ingram, who was a, an Australian. Bill Ingram had come across a bike which folded up, and it was, if you like, the first attempt to make a portable bike. It was called the Bickerton. Some of you may have heard of it. It was a very idiosyncratic bike, made of aluminium. And he was talking to my father about how he could find money to get the Bickerton away from where it was at that stage, which was being made in very small volumes in a garage north of London. He was talking to my father about raising money to, to help Bickerton become a proper commercial reality. And my father said he couldn't help him, but he did say that my son, Andrew, me, was always interested in that sort of thing. You must go and see him, Bill. So poor old, the hapless Bill Ingram, who had many better things to do that day, probably, had to bring this bike round to show it to me. And he turned up at my flat and showed me the Bickerton. And I, of course, was triggered by this because suddenly here was a man who'd actually done something. This was a thought I'd had, but here was the thing in reality, the concrete object. And, of course, I thought I could do better. The bike folded in half. It was rather flexy. The wheels were different sizes. The handlebars were quite awkward to fold. I started thinking I could do something better. So Bill and I party company that evening. He went his way, and eventually he raised money, and Bickerton did become commercialized. Meanwhile, I went my way and started my struggles with the Brompton. I sat down that evening with nothing better to do and came up with basic ideas as to what a bike should do, how it should fold. Nothing very clever. Basically, I just saw four things sticking out. One was the front wheel, one was the back wheel, handlebars, saddle. And all I said was, well, let's bring these things, gather them in together to the middle, and we'll have a nice compact format for the folded bike. So the wheels obviously determined the, the size of the finished package. And that was, if you like, the sum total of my original thinking. And not, not that original either, although, to be fair, nobody else had done it. So I was able to get a patent for what it was worth when that all happened. So what do I do with this design? Well, I sketch away and think, how am I going to make this manifest? I knew nothing about design engineering. I had done engineering at university, but it didn't teach me very much about the practicalities of making a bit of metal and, and all the processes that go into tube manipulation, welding, etc., which I learned in due course at my shareholder's expense. So I had this design, and I started talking to some friends about it and thought, what am I going to do? I didn't have any money. And we came up with the idea that we should make some prototypes and try and persuade some people already in business that this was something they should take on under license. Um, and we had a whip round amongst my friends who were quite well off, 100 pounds from a dozen people. I had 1,200 pounds suddenly. So I went off and started making prototypes. And this was all pretty mean funding, even in those days. I mean, 1,200 pounds is perhaps 4,000, 5,000 now. Start making proper prototypes. So I fetched up doing all the work in my bedroom, in my flat in London, which is opposite a big Catholic church called the Brompton Oratory, um, hence the name Brompton. And I made a mess of my room each day. I took the mattress off the bed and bolted all the vices and drills I had and started bending bits of metal and creating prototypes. Typical sort of garage start to a, to a project of this type. But it was the only way I could make it happen. And the first prototype I, was, I thought was brilliant at the time, but now I look back at it, it was, I'm really ashamed of it. But it sort of worked, and it folded up incredibly compactly because of extra complications. And I went back to my shareholders, who were quite amused by it, and said, I need some more money to get better prototypes. And so it went on. But by the third time, I had a pair of half-decent bikes that I thought I could hawk around to the various businesses I had in my eyes to be potential um, takers of the product under license. Needless to say, as you can imagine, that didn't work out. Yes, Mr. Ritchie, lovely product. They would come back with a smile on their face saying, this is a winner. But then when it actually pushed, came to shove, 
nothing actually happened. They were too uncertain about the market. Nobody had been there before. It was completely unproven ground. And so here I was, quite an impatient young man, um, about four years into the project and feeling very down at heel and sorry for myself. Uh, an opportunity then arose to start manufacture because there was a would-be backer who, in conjunction with a venture capital firm, wanted to put some money into Brompton, about two or three hundred thousand pounds to get it started and into production properly. And that swallowed another year, because by the time we'd done our preparatory work, prepared a business plan, there was toing and froing and delays, again, that went wrong. So I was getting more and more in despair at this stage. Um, finally, once again, it was friends who came to the rescue, if you like. We came up with the idea that we should try and pre-sell 30 bikes at 250 pounds each. Not very much money, but in exchange for that, the owner would get his money back if the project was a success, which was a very distant possibility at that stage. But he'd have to wait a year before he got his bike, because I had to make the things. I didn't have the bikes. So I started making these 30 bikes. In fact, I made 20 extra, because I thought maybe this could lead into production. Um, but my poor customers didn't get them after a year. They didn't get them after 18 months. It was nearly two years by the time I was ready to deliver them. And it was two years of incredibly hard work making tooling, again, on a bit of a shoestring. Now, this was me, as I say, my temperament. I was not a salesman. I hadn't found my way to getting a productive deal, else how I had failed. But I was making up for it by hard work, if you like. Anyway, eventually those 30 bikes were delivered. Um, customers were quite amused. They worked. They were a lot better than the original prototypes. And um, I had these 20 bikes up my sleeve. And I thought, well, if I could sell those, maybe we're in, we're in business. And, and indeed, I was able to sell them. There was no problem. So we started, if you like, a into in production. We needed some working capital, and I set about employing a guy to raise up the frames, weld up the frames, and I borrowed some space, or rented some space, and started manufacturing in batches of 100. And that was fine. It was very hard work. We got a good reception from the press. Everything I made, I was able to sell without any trouble at all. People would come along and talk to me and buy the bikes. And batch 100 came and went, batch 2, batch 3. Come batch 4, something went wrong the man in France who was making our hinge plates for us, there were a total of four in the bike, there were sort of two main hinge points, turned around and said, I'm sorry, we can't supply you with hinge plates anymore. Um, this was no good to me, because I already had spent all the money on the other parts for this last batch or the next batch of 400 bikes. So I was stuck with um, machining from solid metal, which was quite a difficult process, what were originally forged parts. I was at a milling machine for about I don't know, eight or ten weeks solidly, just machining metal away, in order to make these parts to finish the bikes off. And I realized this was no way to carry on. So it was back to the drawing board. Let's try and get some money. I've proved that the thing works. Um, I've got a track record, and I'll prepare a business plan. We found a manufacturing company, an engineering company in the Midlands who could do the frame making for us, and I prepared a business plan and went back to the world of venture capital. Need to say, failure. And that was rather disappointing. Again, masses of interest, Mr. Ritchie, lovely product, but, 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 always excuses. Um, and I'm sure there's nothing new about this, but I'm just giving you a chapter and verse on it so that you get some flavor of how, how long it can take to get things off the ground. Um, there followed another two possibilities, which we hadn't looked for, but arrived. Two possibilities to license the, the idea, and each of them, they went in parallel, they were in succession. Another two years went by, and here, here I was, nearly 12 years into the project, and I was no further forward, and a very dejected man. I eventually rang a guy called Julian Vereker. 
he had bought quite a few of my bikes from the pilot production that I talked about. And he said, Andrew, I'm sure we can get our, um, some money together. Let's see whether I'll put 15,000 pounds in. I've got a few friends who put out 5,000. See if you can get some from your side. I'll guarantee the overdraft. And we'll see how we go from there. And I thought we needed 150,000. We managed to raise 100. And I said, solid. I'm going to go. Let's give it a go. So once again, we started on an underfunded, hard work stage. But this was Brompton now on its way, if you like, finally. We moved into a railway arch. I was full of trepidation because I was getting into, if you like, new territory with tooling up and all the other work that went into it, employing people in quite large numbers. On, at that stage, only threes and fours, but still forcing onto them all the difficulties of actually getting the design and the detail right. I thought at that stage, with all the work I'd done, I had my troubles behind me. Well, basically, that's really when they started. The real struggle has been the last 20 years. And I know this sounds like a bit of a sob story, and struggle, struggle, struggle. Well, there has been, and it was quite interesting. The very first thing I discovered was how much more inventive my suppliers could be than I had been in creating the product, how much more inventive they could be in getting things wrong. It was nothing but problems. Everything that came through the door was not quite right. Because we were so small, they couldn't be bothered. Um, but that was the way it was. And I think anybody who sets up in manufacturing would appreciate how much trouble it is just to get everybody disciplined to do things right. Anyway, eventually we got there, and the rest is history, if you like. Brompton's brand has developed. I've never done any marketing at all, which Peter was talking, talking about as one of the evils of modern age. Luckily, the Brompton caught the imagination of opinion formers, if you like, who, at the word of mouth, the business took off. Um, so, I was going to spend a little bit more time talking about how things had moved forward and how Julian Vereker had helped and how different people had come in to help along the way in the process of actually getting the business going, which, of course, is the real guts of what's happened to Brompton, but I haven't got time. I see I only have a minute left. Um, I just wanted to draw attention at the end to the fact that a lot of the story of Brompton was down to luck. It was... It was good luck, if you like, my having fairly well-to-do friends to start with. If I hadn't had those, it would never have happened. I would have just been unable to move at all. Um, meeting up with a guy like Julian Vereker, who was very brave indeed to get involved with a complete stranger, for that's what I was, and drop his own business, which he was an entrepreneur himself, making hi-fi. Not drop it, but to give a lot of time to getting Brompton supported. That was an extraordinary stroke of luck. Julian, unfortunately, died about eight years ago, and I've had another bit of luck insofar as Another friend has come aboard and been chairman, and I've got two co-directors on the company, on the business, who have been incredibly supportive and have, if you like, filled some of the gaps in my makeup. And finally, just in the last, well, I took, I, I employed him six months ago, six years ago, a, a guy called Will Butler Adams, who is now managing director. Since the moment he joined Brompton, he's been wanting to push the old man out of the cave. That's me, because he's a man full of energy and enthusiasm. And I've realized that this was actually a very interesting possibility for the succession. Um, Will had uh, all the ambition and energy that I had had when I was younger. He loved the Brompton. He bought into my philosophy. Um, and he's now in charge. And, of course, I watch with interest as to how that comes, off, that comes to happen. But you don't often find an employee who, who gets 8 out of 10 in all the, the key boxes. And I was very fortunate in finding that. So I... I wish Brompton well under his tutelage. I'm still there to support him. And I have overshot my time. I have a clock blinking at me now. But thank you all for your attention, and I shall pedal off and enjoy Barcelona later this, e later this afternoon.
Well, that was Andrew Ritchie telling the story of the birth of the Brompton bicycle. And um, I thought that was a really, really excellent uh, exposition. And I think understanding how these ideas develop into reality and all the the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations and all the sacrifices that um, people like Andrew Ritchie have to make to, to make their dream a reality, I think was really interesting. And I think that was a very fitting way to conclude the um, the season of the bike show. I, I will be away until the new year, it's likely. Uh, but I just wanted to finish by saying thank you very much for listening to the bike show. Uh, the audience has grown considerably on the podcast over the last six months you can uh, listen to the show on the podcast if you want it's uh, the website is thebikeshow.net and you'll find the bike show in itunes all the previous hundred and something 105 106 episodes are available to listen again stretching back four years so um, if you haven't heard the uh, the shows from the past then you can access them via the internet or via itunes while the show is off air and very, very lastly, I would like to say thanks to everybody who has supported the bike show, either by uh, making themselves available to be interviewed um, or giving advice or dropping emails, suggesting stories to follow up. And particularly to everybody who's dug into their pockets and um, made a donation to Resonance FM to keep us on air. Um, it's very much appreciated. Anything that you can give to Resonance goes directly into the very direct concrete running costs nobody makes any money out of resonance fm least of all me and uh, we do need your donations to stay on air so enjoy the winter enjoy the dark months get those dynamo lights out for the winter those night rides that start at four in the afternoon um, of course unless you're listening down under in which case enjoy the summer you lucky people and uh, the bike show will be back in the new year with um, a whole new season until then, chapeau and ride safely. <laughs>